0: savings products insured by ncua investment products are not insured not obligations of
1: navy federal and may lose value hey everyone it's ted from consumer cellular the guy in the orange sweater and this is your wake-up call
3: at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody
1: count. You think it's time to sing Baby Beluga together?
4: (laughs) I do have one gripe I want to tell Rafi. I just spent a week with my uh, grandchildren in uh, Victoria. They're uh, two twins, uh, three and a half. And I showed them a video of Rafi singing Baby Beluga. And my God, they played that so many times. It became, what do they call it, an earworm? And that's, you know, I love this song, but uh, too much is too much.
3: (laughs) So the complaint is the song is too good and too appealing (laughs) and unforgettable? Okay.
5: (laughs) This is David Suzuki and his daughter, Severn Cullis Suzuki. They're a father-daughter power duo. CBC viewers voted David as one of the greatest Canadians of all time. Wayne Gretzky, Alexander Graham Bell, and David Suzuki. Impressive company. He's been a scientist and broadcaster for over 50 years and an outspoken advocate for climate action since the 1990s. And Severn is an environmentalist in her own right. When she was 12, she spoke at a conference of global leaders calling out adults for destroying the planet and challenging them to do better. Thirty years later, a video of the speech has more than 32 million views on YouTube. She's like the original Greta Thunberg. David and Severn are Canadian activist royalty. They also happen to be Raffi's former neighbors. Back in the 80s, Raffi was already beginning to think about his legacy. Could he give his audience something more than just sweet, gentle songs? Then in 1989, a radio program on the CBC would shake Raffi to his core. It was called it's a matter of survival and it was hosted by david suzuki i'm david suzuki
4: we have just over 10 years until the end of the century those 10 years will determine if and how we will exist on this planet you will make that decision it's a matter of survival
5: Both David and Severn would inspire the next phase of Rafi's career. They taught him what respectful love between a parent and a child truly looked like, where respect means telling them the truth about our world. The thing is, the truth is messy. It can be overwhelming for adults. So how do we talk to our children about the world without scaring the crap out of them? And how do we keep hope alive for ourselves and our kids when the urge to give up is so strong? I'm Chris Garcia, and this is Finding Raffi, a 10-part series from iHeartRadio and Fatherly in partnership with Rococo Punch, about the life, philosophy, and the work of Raffi, the man behind the music.
4: We uh, did our first program for television in 1989 on global warming. I realized that global warming, we called it then, was a a real threat. I called it, in my script, a slow-motion catastrophe. I knew that we had to get going on it immediately. So I interviewed 140 experts and scientists around the world and put together a five-part radio series on CBC called It's a Matter of Survival. To economists, growth is the main reason governments, industries, and societies exist. If our economy fails to grow, We call it a recession, or a setback. A society that says, enough, we've got enough, we've got more than enough, let's just stay at this level, is simply inconceivable. Yet global warming says, if we continue to grow, we may die.
5: When Rafi heard this, he got chills. He says it affected every cell of his being. And he became frightened for the future of his niece, his nephew, his young fans, and the world they would inherit. He felt compelled to act. Turns out he wasn't the only one moved by it.
4: In Canada, I have to say that uh, radio is still a very powerful uh, medium of uh, communication. That was especially so back in the uh, 1980s and it got over 16,000 letters. And the outpouring of the letters said, look, I heard your show, you scared the hell out of me. I agree with what you're saying, but what can I do?
5: It's a matter of survival, marked a shift in David's career from scientist to climate activist. David didn't have all the answers his listeners were asking for, but he wanted to find some. He also wanted to learn more about the root of the problem. So in 1990, he and his wife Tara Cullis, who's Severn's mother, started the David Suzuki Foundation. In its first couple of years, David and Tara were basically funding the whole operation themselves. Then, Rafi stepped in to help. He was two blocks away from us. And
4: he called actually and said, David, uh, Tara, could I could I see you uh, for uh, a minute or two? And we were so involved with you. Gee, Rafi, lo- love to see you, but we're just going flat out right now. Could we put it off for a while? He called again. Could I come and see you again? We were too busy. Finally, he said, look, I'll drop by your house and just uh, drop off an, an envelope. And it was an envelope with a check for $50,000. Wow. And that was really, for a struggling organization, it was a huge aid to get us started at that early age. So Rafi was there, and
5: uh, I can never thank Rafi enough for that help. So do you pick up the phone quickly or answer the door quicker when he calls now? Because <laughs> <laughs> he gave such a substantial Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> no,
4: he's turned out to be a friend
5: that's amazing. And Severin, do you remember the impression that It's a Matter of Survival had on you as as a kid?
3: Well, I was a, a ch- young child at the time, and I was really impacted by the activism that my parents were involved with, with Indigenous peoples at the time. So our family actually were able to travel down to southern Pará in Brazil and to a Kayapo village and spend some time there. And for myself, I was about eight or nine years old, it was just this life-changing experience to be in a place where the people lived in the rainforest and still lived with the rhythms of the natural world. It just absolutely blew my mind. And when we left the village of Aokri, which was this Kayapo village, I could see out of our our tiny little plane that the forest was on fire. And that had such a huge impact on me. It was about 1989. So it was all kind of, you know, happening at the same time. And uh, I was a child, but I've been very lucky to always have been raised with the feeling that I have a voice and I have to use it.
4: So let me, let me take it from here, Seb, uh, just giving you a parent's uh, point of view. She was an activist from very early on, but after the Amazon experience, she started this group of, of young girls called ECHO, the Environmental Children's Organization. So she came into me in, in uh, 1991, said, Dad, Dad, I hear there's going to be this big meeting in, in uh, Brazil. Uh, are you going? I said, no, no. She's, she said, well, I, I think ECHO. Should go down there. I said, Sav, it's going to be a huge meeting. It's going to be a, a circus.
3: I think you used the term gong show. Oh,
4: yeah, it'll be a gong <laughs> show. So I, w- I was very, very discouraging of her. I, you know, I, I admit that was a stupid thing on my part, but I was thinking, gosh, what are these children going to do down in this place?
5: After the break, Severn. David, and the big meeting in Brazil. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring?
2: Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without painful finger sticks. So you can always know which way your glucose is headed. An arrow shows you where you're heading, up, down, or steady. It can also alert you before you go too low or when you're going too high. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM available, you can make better diabetes decisions about food, medication, and activity in the moment. And all those little decisions can lead to big results. Results you can see like more time and range in lower A1C. With Dexcom G7, you can manage your diabetes with confidence. Get started with the number one recommended CGM brand by doctors and patients at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com.
1: Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com compatibility.
2: More info now.
5: The 1992 Earth Summit was held in Rio de Janeiro. It was created by the UN so countries could work together on issues like reducing pollution and finding alternatives to fossil fuels. Young Severn and her friends
3: were determined to go. And we heard about this meeting and thought, wow, you know, there's going to be all of these old men sitting around talking about. Our future. Somebody should be there to represent what's truly at stake.
5: So they started fundraising.
4: Well, you know, I got to hand it to you, She went out and hustled, I think it was $14,000. Oh, my goodness. Uh,
3: and Rafi was a big supporter of us. Rafi
4: was a major donor to that, yeah.
5: That's incredible because he speaks about the Earth Summit in Rio. It was a huge deal for him, and he says it was a turning point in his career. Do you remember him being there and feeling his support at the conference?
4: Oh, he was absolutely. Uh, He was with us
3: every day. I mean, he was part of the gang. We were the crew. I have some awesome photos of, of him with us all, and he was, he was one of us.
4: Being associated with him, I always think, uh, helped him as well. I mean, he saw things in a really uh, profound way through that experience with the
5: young kids. Even though David thought the conference was just a quote-unquote gong show, he and Tara went too. And any they attended a meeting or a speech in Rio... They brought along Severn and her friends, always encouraging them to share their thoughts and beliefs. The head of UNICEF heard Severn speak. He was impressed. The next thing they knew, Severn had an invitation to speak to the entire conference. This was it, the moment Severn and her friends had waited for. But would these high-powered global leaders really listen to or care about the words of a 12-year-old girl? So
4: then, of course, it was this frantic, oh, we got to, uh, you know, you've got this chance, uh, what are you going to say? And I, I remember saying to Seph, now, Seph, this is what you've got to say. And you turned to me and said, Dad, I know what I want to say.
3: I knew exactly what I was doing and why I was there. At school, even in kindergarten, you teach us how to behave in the world. You teach us... To not to fight with others, to work things out, to respect others, to clean up our mess, not to hurt other creatures, to share, not be greedy. Then why do you go out and do the things you tell us not to do?
5: What an incredibly powerful statement. Severin, you were 12 years old. What is it like to hear that now?
3: I can remember exactly what that was like delivering that speech. And even though I've, I've heard it many times since, in the last 29 years, it's been a really long time, I, I'm still very connected to the emotion that I had during that time. And, yeah, it's just, uh, it all floods back. You grown up, say you love us, but I challenge you, please, make your actions reflect your words. Thank you.
5: Severn got a standing ovation.
4: And I remember at the end of the talk, of course I was scared stiff, you know, like when Sev got up to give it. I, and I was blown away by the way she did it. But when she sat down again, first person to run up and shake her hands was Al Gore. And Al said, that is a best speech. Uh, anyone's given at this meeting. Didn't he say that to you, Sam?
3: He did. And, uh, and then he shook my hand and sat down, and then you whispered, hey, do you know who that is? And I was like, uh, no. And he's like, he's Al Gore. He's a senator. He's really good.
5: I can't imagine sitting there and watching my child, my young child, get up there and getting a standing ovation <laughs> like that. That must have been... You... I can't imagine the pride you had in that moment, David.
4: Oh, yeah, my chest about exploded. Uh, <laughs> that, was, that was pretty exciting.
5: And so, David, what drew you to environmentalism? Like More specifically, I'm curious to know what compelled you to make a shift from scientist to a vocal advocate for the health of the planet.
4: Well, you know, I, I, I never saw myself as an environmentalist. Uh, it's all my life. My great joy has been uh, out camping and uh, fishing. I'm an avid fisherman. You know, I'm a third generation Canadian. In 1941, when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, the Japanese Canadians were considered enemy aliens and all of our possessions were uh, Confiscated, and we were shipped to camps for three years after the war. And, and where we were shipped was deep in the heart of the Rocky Mountains. That's really where my bonding, I guess, with the natural world, it's just w- who I
5: am, was based on those experiences in nature. In David's 50-plus year career as a broadcaster, he's interviewed hundreds of people around the globe, including leading experts on the climate crisis. And in those 50 years, he says one of the most important lessons he's learned is what's at the core of ecological destruction, the disconnection between humans and nature. He remembers interviewing a leader of the indigenous Haida tribe about clear-cut logging.
4: And I said, look, when the trees are all cut down, you'll still be here. Why are you opposing the, uh, the logging, and he, his answer was, well, of course, when the trees are gone, we'll still be here. But then, we, I guess we'll be like everybody else. Now, that may seem like, wow, what the heck is he saying? But as I reflected on that, it was such a profound insight into a different way of seeing our relationship with the world. What he was saying in that simple statement, when the trees are gone, we'll just be like everybody else was that the Haida don't see themselves as ending at their skin or their fingertips. That to be Haida means to be connected with the land, that the air, the water, the soil, that the trees, the birds, and the fish, all of that is what make the Haida who they are. And when you destroy a part of that, you basically, you you diminish the Haida. They've lost a critical part. of of who they are. And for me, that was the beginning of uh, uh, my education of genuine environmentalism was to see the world through Indigenous eyes, which is what is desperately uh, needed now.
5: Severn, uh, from what I understand, you also have a deep connection to the Indigenous communities of Canada. Um, Can you tell me about that and how it's changed the way you see the world?
3: For me, I... um... I moved to Haida Gwaii, I married a Haida person, and um, have had, you know, have, have my Haida family, I have two wonderful little boys, and it's been an absolute privilege for me to be an immigrant to Haida Gwaii, to live on Haida land, in a Haida family, in a Haida way and following the lead of my husband who was working very hard to learn his language and to um you know to really fully realize his his heritage and his identity as a as a Haida person i started learning Haida as well and discovered this incredible magic and the magic is a perspective and a, a world view whenever you speak a different language and perhaps chris you know you might, um, you speak your heritage language, um, you know that you suddenly, you know, have a bit of transformation. You become a a bit of a different person and, um, you can see the world, you see the world in a different way. And there's a beautiful indigenous academic scholar, teacher, writer, Robin Wall Kimmerer, who talks about the import of language and how it really shapes how we treat nature and how we treat each other. If we didn't refer to nature, um, you know, animals, plants, natural things as "it," this kind of lifeless, kind of um, you know, sanitized, objectified things, we would have a very different relationship with the world around us. So through language, we really frame the values of our society and. Right now, as we're heading into further into this bottleneck for human survival, we need to call upon all the creativity that's accessible to humanity, all the diverse ways of being in this world in order to navigate and make it through. And Indigenous peoples and worldviews and languages are going to be key to that.
5: A bottleneck of human survival That sounds terrifying. How can I get over my existential dread and tell my daughter about the fight for her future? More in a minute.
0: Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring?
2: managing your diabetes just got easier the powerful new dexcom g7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without painful finger sticks so you can always know which way your glucose is headed an arrow shows you where you're heading up down or steady it can also alert you before you go too low or when you're going too high. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM available, you can make better diabetes decisions about food, medication, and activity in the moment. And all those little decisions can lead to big results. Results you can see like more time and range in lower A1C. With Dexcom G7, you can manage your diabetes with confidence. Get started with the number one recommended CGM brand by doctors and patients at Dexcom.com. Right rug
1: flooring.
5: I really want to talk to you both about climate activism today. Because to me, I see a direct connection between Severn talking at the Earth Summit in Rio and Greta Thunberg addressing the UN 27 years later in 2019. What is it like for you both to see kids leading the fight for climate action today?
3: It's very moving to me to see today's generation of young people speak up, take to the streets, take the environmental movement to the next level. It's also quite sad um, for me that, you know, these kids have to deal with it. At the same time, you know, it was always so. We always have depended on our young people to be the warriors of society. And if you look at revolutions around the world, they're always led by younger people the people who have the clear eyes for what's truly at stake and the the imagination and the hope and the beauty in believing that things can be different. So I think that this is a continuation of movements throughout our human history and I'm so proud of Greta, I'm so proud of the thousands of other Gretas out there who have been working for change.
4: The first time that I met Greta, The first thing I said to her was, I am so sorry that you are having to do this. You know, at her age, I feel that young people should be out exploring the world. You know, they're edging out of the nest and they're making new relationships, finding out things that they really like to do, the things that matter. And That's what young people should be doing. Mom and dad should be the eco-warriors on their behalf. But of course uh, what Greta has done and what Sev did when she was young, she didn't see the world in all of its complexity and so that the simple truths came out of their 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 mouths and it, the power of the words of, of young people is that, It's unalloyed by all of these other priorities that come and impinge on it. It's simply a straightforward fact. And Greta's message was so powerful that we learn science, and I listen to scientists and they say, if we go on this way, I have no future. Well, oh my God, what what a powerful message. And as Sev says, thousands and thousands of Gretas have sprung up all over the world. Gosh, if we adults can't rally to that, if we don't love our children and hear that message, then what kind of a species are we?
5: So I am a dad now myself, and I know that at some point I'm going to have to talk about all of this with my daughter, Sunny. Like, how, David? How do I talk to her about this? How did you talk about climate change with your kids? I
4: remember when her younger sister was uh, up and coming and Sev had gone on to high school and and Sarika had more or less taken over Echo. Uh, and I said, hey, Sarika, this is a great project. You, sh- you and your gang should do this. And she said, why should I? I hear what you and mom are saying. It's too late. And I was just blown away. I mean, here's this child listening to us, Severn. It prompted her to be motivated to go out and do something. Sarika heard all this and is thinking, "Well, it's too late." Um, the big problem we face now, and I'm hearing from many, many um, parents of teenagers, is that there there are very severe uh, uh, psychological problems. They're having to uh, send their kids for uh, for help, and uh, this is the, the hard part. Is If we face the absolute truth of what the scientists are saying, it's a pretty grim, it's a a grim world. And I think we have to focus on what we're doing
5: at the local level. It'll be the sum total of what we are all trying. What about you, Severn? How do you talk to your kids about climate change?
3: Two things when talking to my kids about our ecological crisis. One is... a a superhero uh, narrative or a narrative of, um, you know, this dramatic story that is unfolding, which is, you know, feels very much like it's a battle between light and dark. It's a, a, a battle for life. It's a battle for all that we hold dear. And in that, you know, there is a real need for all of us to use our voices. We all have a voice. You know, my mom saying, hey, why don't you, you know, talk to your friends and see what they could do. You know, maybe together you can do something, you know. And, you know, we started with the beach cleanup. You know, that seemed very um, small at the time with what we were learning about. But then when you clean up an entire beach with your friends, the feeling that you have is that you can take on the world. It is so vital that we do not model despair, because we don't know the future, we don't know the Gretas that are going to appear to us in the future and who might transform the playing field for the environmental movement. We have to keep that open. And I think right now everybody wants to know how do you still stay optimistic or what keeps you from despair or are you hopeful or is it too late? Of course it's not too late. And now we have to roll up our sleeves and get into the fight. And especially as parents, as grandparents, we have to join with our kids and help them feel empowered because that is what is going to carry us through. If we give up now, well then, we're absolutely giving up on our kids. So we have to model that and we have to, we have to show them small things to big things that we can all do.
5: So I've got one more question for each of you. And I'll start with you, Severn. What have you learned from your dad?
3: What have I learned from this guy? (laughs) (laughs) I've learned so much, so much from this man who my whole life long has always been a warrior for positive change in this world. And I continue to learn from him. I'm now in the position of executive director of the David Suzuki Foundation. So clearly I believe in his vision and mission. And it's also, you know, it's not just the David Suzuki Foundation. It's also the Tara Cullis Foundation, David's partner in everything, um, my mom. And the two of them started this, this incredible organization, you know, Back in 1990, when I was a kid, when I was also, you know, hey, I started my own tiny organization, (laughs) me and my buddies. Um, So I've watched how they've always tried. They just never give up. And even today, you know, I mean, dad's always coming up with new ideas for you know, hey, we could try this. Well, what about this? And now as an executive director of this organization that is adjacent to him and his work, he's not on the board, he's not legally associated, but he is still our, our symbol or our inspiration. He is constantly trying. And to me, that is just so inspiring and powerful. And, you know, we can never give up. And that's truly what I've learned from David. And I'm grateful for that, um, that spirit every day.
4: But, Sev, you have to also say you've learned from my weaknesses and fallacies. or
3: Well, that would, we don't have time to talk about all that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> take the compliments while you can, Dad.
5: <laughs> and, David, what have you learned from your daughter, Severn?
4: Well, it's, uh, it's just, she is uh, part of my commitment into the future. When she called to say, hey dad, I'm pregnant, my immediate reaction was, gosh, you know, you've been in this game a long time. You know how, how serious uh, the issues are, bringing a child. And I know that a lot of young people today are facing this crisis of, whether to go on and have a child in a world that is uh, worsening uh, every day. And her response blew me away. She said, this is my commitment to the planet. I am committed to the future and I'm gonna do everything I can. My child is my commitment to this planet and the future. I feel any parent or grandparent of young children, you're committed to that future. And you've got no choice but to do everything you can for your child or grandchild's future.
5: Here's something my dad used to say, Siempre palante, patrani para coger impulso. Which means, always move forward, Don't step back even to gain momentum. So we push forward in the face of despair. This is coming from a man who knew something about despair. He was abandoned by his father at a young age, was a political prisoner who suffered from PTSD. And yet, he was a great man, husband, and dad. We talk a lot about the anxiety and distress of generational trauma but seldom do we talk about generational grit and greatness, the spirit of survival, the despair we overcome to continue our family lines, our planet, and our species. It's these traits that I am hoping to pass on to Sunny, just like my parents passed on to me and that David passed on to his children. My conversation with David and Severn had me thinking a lot about this, how hope starts at home. And as we navigate through the trauma of a global pandemic, the climate crisis, and Chris Pratt as Mario, we need to do as my dad said. We need to keep pushing forward. After all, it's a matter of survival. next time on Finding Rafi
1: and the reason I tried it was I I felt so passionate about this planet that needed all of us at the same time I felt it wasn't a five-year-old's job to help the Amazon stay intact (laughs) you know it's not it's not a three-year-old's job right
5: if we can show people around the world why nature is valuable to their lives then they're going to protect it in their own enlightened self-interest which is the best thing we can do I don't think love alone is enough to actually make anything stick. It's only one step. You also have to value it if it's going to be sticky over the long period of time. Finding Raffi is a production of iHeartRadio and Fatherly in partnership with Rococo Punch. It's produced by Catherine Fenolosa, Meredith Honig, and James Trout. Production assistance from Charlotte Livingston. Alex French is our story consultant. Our senior producer is Andrea Asuaje. Emily Foreman is our editor. Fact-checking by Andrea Lopez Cruzado. Rafi's music is courtesy of Troubadour Music. Special thanks to Kim Layton at Troubadour. Severn's speech is courtesy of the United Nations. The clips from It's a Matter of Survival are courtesy of the CBC. And you can learn more about the David Suzuki Foundation at davidsuzuki.org. Our executive producers are Jessica Alpert and John Parati at Rococo Punch, Ty Trimble, Mike Rothman, and Jeff Eisenman at Fatherly, and me, Chris Garcia. Thank you for listening. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring?